This is Bump and Stacy on Seattle Sports. Streaming through the Seattle Sports app and at seattlesports.com. Now, here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacy Ross. Here we go now. Let's find out about another Seahawks coaching candidate with Rams play-by-play announcer JB Long, who joins us now on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline. I am going to start, JB, with a conversation about Raheem Morris. He's got a second interview scheduled with the Seahawks. What can you tell us about Raheem's time with L.A.? Oh, good morning, Stacey. Good morning, Bump. Thank you for the invitation back. Nice to catch up with you during the offseason. And always pleased to sing the praises of Raheem Morris, who I actually had the pleasure of getting to know when he was the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I remember the circumstances that he was in and the grace with which he handled them way back when. And I'm not surprised that here he is uh, a popular candidate in this coaching cycle, although the odds are dwindling. It seems like these, these jobs are shrinking and uh, Seattle was the one I didn't want him to get. And now it's kind of the one of the last jobs standing. So uh, mixed feelings here as he gets this next interview, um, I, I'll say a lot more about Raheem in your follow-up, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. broad strokes, I will say I would hire him for the scheme and the football mind, yes. But that's not even top five among the reasons why I think he deserves to be a head candidate, if that makes sense. Uh, I think his leadership, his communication, his personality, the way that he elevates uh, every member of his defense, but also of the organization, are far more compelling reasons to make him the face of your franchise. Yeah, um, we've spoken to uh, several people about um, of Raheem, and, and that's what we're getting. And um, I look at, you know, I'm going to go back to what the second time we played you guys, uh, the L.A. Rams, and uh, you said, man, be careful, this team is uh, is ready to make a run. And we smirked, but they did exactly that, J.B. You called it, man. Now, what role did the, the defense play in this, and what role did uh, Morris play in this? Well, I think we all like overachievement, right? And I think a lot of these awards now, especially looking at the list of coach of the year candidates, a lot of it has to do with who did the most with the least. And I think Raheem Morris, if you want to, you know, color it in that context is right there among the best coordinators from 2023. They stripped down this defense. As you know, they took the salary cap pain in 2023 and much of that pain came on the defensive side of the football Uh, Bobby Wagner went back to Seattle. Jalen Ramsey was traded to Miami. Their defensive tackles, Greg Gaines went to Tampa Bay. A'shaun Robinson to New York, right? Like they streamlined their defensive operation and essentially cleaned house. They said, Aaron Donald, you and Ernest Jones figure it out. Um, And that's exactly what Raheem Morris did. And so that from that week one, second half shutout against the Seahawks to the coming out of the bye win again against Seattle to put the Rams back on track. I don't think you can, in good faith, make the case that this was anything better than a league average defense statistically, but did they rise up in key moments and give this team a chance to be a 10-win franchise and a playoff uh, group again? Absolutely. And they did did that with um, what we kind of call the no-name defense in Los Angeles. Uh, They're becoming household names now, but there was not much in the cupboard. You go back and look at some of the summer press clippings, uh, and you tell me what it would have been fair expectations for Raheem Morris in the Rams defense. I thought it was also so telling, JB, that uh, Rams GM Les Snead in a press conference almost, it seemed like kind of unsolicited, just gave like this really uh, striking endorsement of of Morris and, and really, really stress, uh, stressing just how great a candidate he is. Now, I know that you could look at it and you can go, oh, he's just you know trying to help someone out and you got to do that. But you don't have to do that. <laughs> he doesn't have to do that. I mean, can you tell us a bit more about you know, what, um, you know, people within that front office, the coaching staff and players have to say about him? 
Yeah, I, I do think there's a cynical lens to look at this, and, and I'm not one to do that. I, I believe Sean McVay and Les Snead and so many others who have spoken up, Kevin Demoff, um, in favor of Raheem because they earnestly believe that he's more than ready for it. He's been ready. He's more than deserving, and they don't want to see this cycle pass him by um, because who deserves it more than him? I, I think they're arguing for him in good faith. I think they're referrals public are important to encourage the amount of interviews and the wide net that he's getting to cast. But make no mistake, these are bittersweet comments because whether it's Sean or Les or Kevin, they all know the chore of having to replace Raheem Morris is not one that they want to take on this February. It's just not, um, especially if he lands within the division. No part of Sean McVay is going to look, is going to look forward to dueling with Raheem Morris twice per year or maybe more. Um, so, uh, I know I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth, but like, yes, I really want what's best for Raheem personally, but I will celebrate as soon as all of these coaching vacancies are filled if he's not chosen for one of them, if that makes sense. <laughs> as you should, as you should, man. Um, Stacy and I have been looking at just the available jobs. Obviously, Dave Canales eliminates one with him going to the Panthers. Now you have Seattle, Atlanta, and Washington. Um, you look at the scheme that the Rams ran last year. It was a 3-4 defense. Obviously, there's a 3-4 over here as well. Not too familiar about what's going on with, with the commanders in Atlanta. But what do you see on this roster that makes you feel like, one, it's attractive to Moore's being that there's only 32 jobs, um, you know, in, in the NFL anyway, a head coach job. But um, what do you what do you see on this roster that makes you think that he can have success over here? Well, a lot of higher draft picks um, that maybe he was working with as recently as this year in Los Angeles. I mean, to think that he got um, not one, but two players, two rookies to actually finish with more sacks than Aaron Donald uh, with Byron Young and Kobe Turner is, is super impressive. And I, I know we said like scheme is not one of the top five reasons why I would recommend him for any job, but I do think it's important to recognize that he came in on the heels of Brandon Staley who transitioned the Rams from Wade Phillips to more of the Vic Fangio defensive scheme that's been popularized in the last three to five years around the league. Um, and, and I think that was a big ask of Raheem Morris, not because he's not capable of adapting to it, but it's basically, hey, can you come in here and just kind of graduate what we've already started? Like, sure, put your fingerprints on it and give it your own flair, but we really like the direction this is heading. Can you make that work? Yeah, totally. Um, I can make that work. I can make that work to the tune of a Super Bowl. I can make that work to the tune of Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey and uh, so many of others who have come through having career caliber seasons. But then also beyond that, I can grow up the next range of defensive backs, uh, many of whom are day three picks or undrafted guys. And if that means we got to play off coverage and rally to keep everything in front, fine. If that means that we're not getting as much pass rush with four as we would like to, as you know, the Von Millers and the Leonard Floyds go on to other points, then yeah, then we can send blitzes. We can send our middle linebacker. We can send corners. Like we can do things and play tighter coverage behind it if necessary. And it's going to be a higher risk, higher reward defense than we're used to. But I think that adaptability is something that makes Raheem an attractive candidate because in addition to everything he's able to do defensively, he also brings, I think, an offensive um, lens and a mindset 
to an organization as well. Like he's worked on both sides of the ball. He's worked with, you know, Atlanta receivers and other things along the way that I think makes him more than just a defensive scheme hire. A bit of a weird question for you, JB, but you have some really unique insight. Um, Up here in Seattle, it's been 14 years since any of us have been talking about a new head coach. And we've seen a lot of development within this division, specifically from Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan's offenses. And I think in Seattle, there's always been this sentiment of, oh, God, these guys are so smart and the X's and O's is off the chart and these offenses are so brilliant. And so I think naturally people in Seattle for this new head coach want an X's and O's guy. And they're like, I want someone who's this brilliant young coordinator. The first thing you said about Raheem was, look, he's a really smart guy, but that's not even the most impressive thing about him. And it reminded me of Albert Breer saying the same thing about Sean McVay um, and that, you know, maybe some of the stuff we think makes someone great uh, that there's so much more behind the scenes. What have you learned about what makes a great head coach from mm-hmm. working with Sean McVay? Man, there's so much there, and I'm actually going to go away from Sean. I will come back to him in a second, yeah. but I think Dan Campbell and the success that the Lions have had is, is a great example of what Raheem Morris could do for an organization, right? Like uh, Dan brings a temperament, and it's unique, right? Uh, and It's unapologetic, and it did not get off to a good start there. Um, but I don't think Dan Campbell is necessarily someone that a lot of the NFL world looks at as like that, you know, wonderkind X's and O type. Does he have influence uh, on that entire organization schematically? Of course he does. But he hired great coordinators, both of whom are head coaching candidates now themselves. And, and he set the temperature in that entire organization. And I think Raheem Morris has the ability to do that. And I'm not sure what visions he has of rounding out a staff. I'm sure those conversations have and will continue to come up. Um, I'm afraid that many of them involve people who are inside the Rams building right now that he might bring with them to the Pacific Northwest. And I would hate for that to happen. Um, But I I, kind of will circle back to Sean and the question that you asked. I think Sean is a unique force in football in terms of um, his play calling. But again, the Rams uh, did not go to two Super Bowls under his leadership just because of his play calling. Um, the consistent effort that they bring to the field week in and week out, year in and year out, the staff that he's hired, the talent that he's attracted, uh, the way that he leads and motivates and communicates, those are the real reasons why Sean McVay is one of the premier coaches in this game. And I don't know anyone among his peers that he respects more than Raheem Morris. I think Raheem being there for this season of Sean's life and career helped Sean get through five and 12 last year and have a 10 win campaign. Like I'm not sure that's possible without the friendship and the guidance and the influence and the mentorship of Raheem Morris. And he would tell you as much, man, that's the tough part about the NFL Like you get, you know, there are a lot of coaches that you see their names pop up, but uh, once you find a connection or you have a connection like McVay and and Morris, as soon as you have success, you know, that guy is gone, right? It's just, that's just how it works. And when, uh, when we heard our GM over here, Schneider talk about, you know, the guy who's going to be next, there's some things that he talks about. He wants to keep some things that Pete Carroll has done, but he also wants to make sure that guy has room to grow and be himself over here. And I hear you talk about Sean McVay and the culture that he has over there with the Rams and how Raheem played a big part in that. Um, you know, what 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 was that culture like? Is it as simple as just, you know, the, the, the cliches that we hear about football, accountability, responsibility, you know, transparency. Um, if he does get the job over here, what what will the culture look like? Well, I, I think it's honestly, it's interpersonal relationship building. And I think much like Sean Raheem has that very specific skill set where 
he can get the most out of an undrafted defensive lineman out of Weber State like Jonah Williams. He can turn him into a legitimate rotational piece on his defensive line, and he can relate to him just as equally as he can capture the imagination of a future Hall of Famer like Jalen Ramsey. And he can develop, you know, day-to-day, week-to-week relationships where he still keeps in touch with Jalen. Like, they still talk by phone every week. Um, And so when you're asking them for their best when their best is required, I don't think um, Raheem does that from from a standpoint of anything other than I care for you and I want what's best for you. So he can he come into a new situation um, and tap into a I think an established culture and locker room there in Seattle and build those bridges in one off season? Yeah, I, I absolutely think he can. Um, he's someone that no matter the walk of life you come from, no matter your draft status or your professional resume. The players that I talk to about Raheem Morris don't want to see him leave because of how much he's meant to their personal and professional development. JB, just wanted to take a couple minutes at the end of our interview with you to to look at the state of the Rams. Obviously, we've always got to keep an eye on divisional foes. And uh, congratulations to Matthew Stafford, who was nominated for Comeback Player of the Year. Um, I have been wondering for some time, like, hey, when is the elbow or when are the arm injuries just going to be too much? And then he keeps surprising me, really flew under the radar at the beginning of this year uh, in terms of what he was doing. Can you tell me a bit about his season and what you saw from him? And then not to tag on, but like potentially what next year could bring. Sure. No, I mean, from where we finished last year with that week, 18 loss in Seattle with, you know, he and Aaron Donald and Cooper cup on the sideline to where they stand right now. It's, it's a staggering turnaround. And I give Matthew a lot of credit, not just for healing, but also what he did to, I think, improve his mobility and athleticism in his mid thirties. Like he was as good in the pocket and off platform as I've seen him as a Ram. And I think even going back to his younger days in Detroit, he really worked hard on that this off season. Uh, playing tennis actually was one of his, uh, you know, secret ingredients to, uh, to enhancing some of that footwork and mobility. Um, believe it or not, this offseason. But yeah, return to health was the most important thing. And I think the year that he had for me takes him from a category where post-Super Bowl victory, I think he was deserving of being in the Hall of Fame conversation. Now, after this year, where he played at an MVP level for about the back half of the year, I think he goes from kind of on the bubble to more likely than not to be in Canton someday. And not just because of the way he's played this season or the numbers that he put up, but because I think to your question about his future, he proved to himself and to his organization and to those around him that he still has so much left to offer. And I think if he can stack a couple more good years on top of this one, um, his counting numbers will be such that you can't ignore them. And the Rams hope that they'll have enough team success that he'll get a chance um, to play in the postseason and add to his resume as well. Last one I got for you, uh, JB, no way. I wasn't going to ask about that young receiver over there with me being a receiver, man. Uh, Puka, I I watch him play, and he's not the most polished receiver when it comes to route running. He's not extremely creative with his body language, but it just works, man. Did you know that he was going to have a great season? I I doubt you could predict that he would have all these rookie records, but when you first saw this guy in camp, man, did you feel like he was going to have a special season? I think as bold as I would have gotten is this guy might be a starter as a rookie, which is plenty, right? For, especially for a receiver in McVay's system. Um, I think that would have been plenty in terms of a prediction. Now, circumstances really played into his favor, and I give him credit for capitalizing because Cooper Cup was not practicing through the offseason, so he got a crash course 
in Stafford and McVay earn their trust and confidence. Cooper Cup starts the year on injured reserve, so he comes to Seattle in that week one debut and has a huge day because he is a primary for Stafford. And let's face it, Matthew's a kingmaker in this league, right? You can appreciate the fact that you look at some of the great receivers, uh, receiver seasons in league history, whether it's Megatron in Detroit, Cooper Cup, Triple Crown Super Bowl MVP, or this one from Puka, which was Rookie of the Year worthy. Who's throwing all of those footballs? It's Matthew Stafford. Uh, when he gets a target that he likes and trusts, he will force feed it. But I give Puka so much uh, credit because if the knock on him was that he wasn't fast enough and that he had some injury red flags as a collegiate, he comes in and plays – an 18-game season, and he continued to elevate the bar. It wasn't just a flash in the pan, a big, quick start um, from his first game in Seattle into the regular season finale at San Francisco when he set the rookie records for receiving to his first playoff game in Detroit where he saved his best for last. Um, Puka Nakua never ran out of gas. He fought through. He competed. Um, and I, I, <laughs> I love the guy. And uh, he's not going to win rookie of the year because of what C.J. Stroud did, and that's right. fine. I get it. Um, but Nakua is an incredible, incredible organizational piece, and I think he's got a long runway in this league. Yeah, just an unbelievable season. A text in from the 253 to us. This guy is selling the heck out of Raheem Morris. That was a radio edit, and I'm buying. Bring him in. That guy (laughs) is JB Long, Rams play-by-play announcer, and we always love talking to JB. Uh, JB, I hope we get to hear from you uh, when we're facing the Rams uh, later this season. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, JB. Appreciate the invitation. I'm really not selling it. I mean everything I said, but most importantly, I mean that I don't want him to land in (laughs) Seattle. And so I hope the only trip he makes to the Pacific Northwest is when the Rams play the Seahawks and he's in Royal and Seoul. You know what? We'll accept it. That's fair. Very fair take. Thanks so much, JB. All right. See you both. All right. Let's get to four down territory. This is four down territory going inside the game with former Seahawks and Coug wide receiver Michael Bumpus. First down, though he was just hired by the Philadelphia Eagles, you did entertain the thought of Vic Fangio coming to the Seahawks. Why? Man, he almost, he jacked up my first down. I came in today, I go, okay, now we got to call it Omaha. We got to call it Audible. So we switched this up just a little bit. Now, the reason why I would have entertained it, like if you go ahead and get a young offensive-minded coach, I've always said if you go young offensive-minded head coach, you got to go veteran with the defense. And you look at Vic Fangio, like his effect on the NFL has been crazy, right? But no one's been able to run his system the way that he runs it. Quick crash course, what he does is he runs a cover two to the main receiver side, like their number one receiver on that side. Then he runs a cover four uh, to the back side of that. He walks his outside linebackers. Every gap is controlled. The defensive line has a primary gap and a second there gap but that middle linebacker is on an island by himself pretty much he's like look you have to make the play you roll the safety down he starts with too high does a whole bunch of stuff right now he kind of tweaked this defense to stop Sean McVay and the Rams um, a few years back and he's done a great job Sean McVay even talks about Vic Banjo but the reason why I was interested because I go look Clint Hurt came from uh, Fangio. Desai came from Fangio. Staley comes from Fangio. Neither of those guys have had success when it comes to running his system. And I'm looking at, I went back, I looked at film, and I'm looking at the mistakes that these guys are making, and I go, it's not being communicated properly. And then you're asking your corner, when that run gets bounced outside, you're asking your corner to become a tackler. I'm thinking, all right, Reek, you got to become a tackler this offseason. But the reason why I was intrigued, I go, okay, you have essentially a bunch of pieces to run this defense. Why not bring in the guy? who 
pretty much created this defense and see if he can communicate it properly, if he can get the assistance to have his back when it comes to that. So simply because I've watched other guys try to duplicate it and their defenses have not been, haven't had the success that some of Vic Fangio's defenses have had, when he was out on the market, I go, man, take a look at him. But then he got family in Pennsylvania. He's going to Philly. It all makes sense. So you almost messed up my first down, Vic, but I found a way to flip it. So take that, Vic. Take that, take it's that. called playing defense. Second down. <laughs> Should poor Todd Bowles be man. getting all this criticism for not calling a timeout with time left on the clock against the Lions? Here's the thing, man. If the reason why I went soft on Bowles is because you know the type of person he is, right? At least everything that we've gotten is that um, you look at his face, whether they're up or down, the game's tied, he's the same, he's calm, he's composed, he communicates with his guys. Well, you start to break this thing down, it goes, man, that was 34 seconds left. You call a timeout, you force those guys, the Lions, you either punt the football, kick a field goal, put it on the foot. There was still opportunity. Were these guys going to be able to, to come back? Probably not, because the time that would have been left on the clock wouldn't have been much. But you look at it, there are just things that need to happen in a football game. Even if you feel like the game is over, you still got to say, look, we tried every possibility and it just didn't work out for us. I don't think he was wrong for not calling a timeout out because I was the same way. I'm like, this game is over. But to appease ownership and everybody else, it's yeah. almost like you just got to go through the process even the though you felt like there was nothing there. So he deserves a bit of it, you know, but I think he can handle it. Uh, but you got to play until the final whistle. Third down. All right, a really popular name with the Seahawks head coaching search. Still in the playoffs, though. What do you like about Mike McDonald's play calling? Yeah, this is uh, this is our guy, Stacy. So um, I, I keep looking into this young man and seeing what he's all about. I just love the variety in his play calling. Like one week he plays against, I believe it was the Colts, and they blitz like 37% of the time. And then the next week they play someone else. Uh, it was more of a passing quarterback who's going who's gonna to light you up. And he doesn't do it. He goes, no, nah, we're going to blitz about uh, 11% of the time. And then I look at his coverages. Some week he's heavy on cover one. Lots of week he's heavy on cover three. I just like the variety. Some guys just get into their zone and say, this is what we do. This is what we're going to run. We're not changing things. We might switch our alignment a little bit or bluff with the safeties when it comes to coverages. But Mike McDonald goes, look, who are we playing this week? Okay, I'm going to switch up my defense to combat what that offense does. And that's what I love about him, man. We've seen heavy one, heavy two, heavy three, even cover four. We've seen a blitz 11% of the time. We've seen on blitz 37 to 40 percent of the time i just like the adjustments that he makes according to the personnel the scheme of the offense he's going up against another reason why i am the president of the mike <laughs> mcdonald's bring him to seattle campaign fourth down are you making t-shirts making t-shirts okay. yeah what has geno smith been able to do in a short period of time here in seattle Man, it's um the off season gives you a lot of time to reflect, right? And um, the more I reflect, the more I appreciate what Gino did. Yes, he had a, a tale of two seasons, right? Or two halves of the season, one half good, one half bad. The same last year, but this is what he's done. He's kept dudes employed. Canales does not go to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers if Gino doesn't have Facts. that Pro Bowl season. Shane Waldron does not become the offensive coordinator for the Bears if people don't look at film and say, all right, he's got this quarterback playing. He's got a guy who's been in the league for 10 years doing things he's never done before. So as much as people think that Gino's not enough, the more I look at it, I think he can be enough for a, sh a short amount of time. Um, the more you got to appreciate him. He's gotten these guys jobs. If Gino does not play the way he did in 2022, if he does not do the things he does in 2023, 
We got Shane Waldron, who's out of a job, and Canales, who's not the head coach of the Panthers right now. Now, Canales built off of that, went to Tampa Bay, and helped Baker Mayfield do his thing. But goodness gracious, man, give Geno some love. He's keeping guys employed in this league. It is wild to see the change in Geno. I think that because we're like, hey, Geno's like not that bad. You know what I mean? Good bridge quarterback. People are always like, they're Team Geno. Propaganda. <laughs> and it's always really weird to me because I'm like, I don't know how many people are like diehard. Geno is the future build around him for 10 years, people. Uh, most people I know are like, yeah, he's really, you know, I'm, he's yeah. really not my problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting because I remember the Geno chance in week one of last, last season yeah. when Russell Wilson and the Broncos mm-hmm. were here and just how that's flipped with now people being like, I'm over it is wild. Yeah. The, the more you play, the more opportunities you give people to, to pick holes in your game. Yeah. You can do that to everybody. Minus Anybody. maybe Pat Mahomes. Even Pat Mahomes, man. There were some Chiefs fans. What you you picking at? Well, no, I'm not picking at at anything, but I think there were Chiefs fans that felt like, yeah, you have drops from uh, a lot of your pass catchers, but you're making mistakes too. Like, it's just the bar is the sky. Got to be perfect. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's just unreal. You're listening to Bump and Stacey on Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports. Coming up in the timeline, a fantasy football cheating scandal. You know I love a cheating scandal. Plus, a chilly surprise for A's owner, John Fisher. Don't go anywhere. This is The Timeline with Bump and Stacy. Brought to you by 1-800-DUIOA. It's The Timeline on Bump and Stacy, reading you the top stories you're going to see and hear about on your own timeline. And this time we're getting started with the no longer Oakland A's, soon to be Vegas A's, at a recent convention put on by the Las Vegas Chamber of Commerce. The soon to be Las Vegas A's uh, were going to be welcomed into the city. Oh my God, yay, there's a baseball team. It's so exciting. Uh, Unfortunately, they didn't get the reception they were probably expecting. Let's give it up one more time for Mary Beth and John Fisher, please. The Las Vegas A's. We like the sound of that, right, Vegas? Yeah? Yes? Are we, are we alive back there, Las Vegas? How we feeling? <laughs> oh, man. How many people tough. were there, though? I hope 100. It was like an auditorium. I think a regular... That- conference center yeah i think that uh now there's a couple possibilities you're in vegas so maybe some people are nursing a hangover uh you could have people you know it's chamber commerce maybe they're not huge baseball fans uh or you could just have people who hate john fisher or you're moving a team from Oakland and you do not have an established fan base in Correct. Las Vegas yet. Correct. You go out there, you win some games, uh, you do what the Vegas Knights did. I bet you uh, wherever they go in Vegas, people show them some love. Nah, you got to earn that. You know what, Vegas? I appreciate that. I you make it. the A's earn it because you see how they did the fans out there in Oakland. Don't want to pay for a new stadium. Conditions were crazy. Lose it on purpose. Yeah, I like that. Make them, make them earn your trust. I also like props to that announcer for being like, am I right? <laughs> Am I right? Let's hear it. How we feel it? How we feel it? When I say Vegas, you say A's. Vegas. And then just silence. 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 <laughs> I loved her really I feel, trying. I feel bad for um, the MC of that because that's your job, right? You, you're you're the connection between the crowd and whoever you're interviewing. And that puts you in an awkward position. You can hear it in her voice, but uh, A for effort. It reminds me of like every conference you go to and it's like, 8 a.m. and the MC comes out all fired up and they're like, "Good morning!" and then everybody <laughs> responds, "Good morning." I said, "Good morning." <laughs> Is that all you got? Oh, and it's like, God. "Good morning." I hate it so much. It does. It reminds me of like uh, just my best friends in sales. That's every sales. Uh, what's it called? Like um, where there's like little 
tents and tables like a, like a convention. Convention. convention convention yes yeah. exactly sales convention is just can i get can i get a hello it's just <laughs> so cringy yeah Next up, ESPN's Tim McMahon reported last night Luka Doncic had Suns fans ejected after, or a Suns fan, uh, the fan heckled him by saying, you're not going to believe this. Yo, mama. I can't believe I'm saying this on air. Luka, you're tired. What? (laughs) Get your butt, radio edit, on the treadmill. Not cool, fan. Not cool. Luca exchanged words with McMahon in his post-game press conference to talk about it. That was not a true all. That was not the only thing he said. Um, But I knew you would be the first one to to point out something like that. Because I'm not going to say what he said, but I knew you were going to be the first one to put out something like that. So I just thought, man, it's just funny. He always seemed to be the first one to put some bad stuff about me. First of all, 99% of the stuff I've written about you has been good. Uh, I don't know. I was sitting two rows behind us. All right, so it was the only thing he was, that time he said something, the only thing? That was what you reacted to. Yeah, I was hearing the whole first half, right? Oh, you didn't hear anything? He was definitely hollering. Okay, there we go. Well, you put out something that was just the only thing. But what was okay, the final what, 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 what was the, what final, was the issue? What was the thing that... It's not the issue. I'm just seeing you seems to be the first one to always put something bad about me. I don't read Tim McMahon's work nor a ton of coverage mm-hmm. uh, specifically about Luca from local reporters, but I have a hard time believing he's always putting out bad things about him. Yeah, and um, one of the things I do not like about Luca is he is becoming the biggest crybaby in this league. It used to be LeBron crying about everything. I, I kid you not, you watch Luca play for a half, and he's complaining about every little foul. Like, goodness gracious. So... Um, that's my perception of Luca. Now, as a reporter, if there were other things said, he should know. The final straw was when he said this. The mm-hmm. fan was heckling him throughout the game, but this is what put Luca over the top. And I think that if that is true, Luca's looking at the situation and saying, "I just had enough with this guy." Yeah. You're not going to mention all this other stuff. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a bad situation, and I doubt. I mean, come on now, how many bad things you're going to write about Luca? Luca's a baller in this saying. league. It's what like, can you say about him? This guy probably said one or two things to critique Luca, or even saying like, "Hey, what this guy say to you? Like, you had him thrown out. What he say? Like, all I heard was this." Well, of course you're pointing that out. No, I genuinely want to know what prompted you. Fans always heckle. Yes, yeah, what they Fans do. Fans are always saying crazy things. Why this fan? Like, what did he say out of curiosity? And so, oh, so was it a home game? If it was a home game, maybe it's a familiar voice. And like he's someone just that's tired. always there. Yeah. He's just tired say of that, it. man. Just say, like, man, like that's an opportunity to be like, hey, what you guys don't see is how many like regulars we get heckling us. And like, yeah, it's it, I have he he has the freedom to come here and heckle, and I have the freedom to kick him out. Like. Much better answer. It was a home game, and they got blown out 132 to 109. He's so. mad, mm-hmm. is what he is. Uh, all right, next up in the timeline, the National Fantasy Football Championship, uh-oh, has fired an employee. Why? Because said employee was involved in a cheating scandal during an NFL playoff tournament that had a six-figure first prize. It was like $150,000. So I think that when we think of like cheating in fantasy football, you think of like, uh, you know, you have a friend who's out of the playoffs clearly, but maybe they drop a player, let you know when they drop him so that you can quickly add him. Like they're colluding, right? That's what you think of. Or you think of people that are, you know, uh, trying to take people you need, which is really just like smart fantasy football play. Yeah, get on the waiver wire quickly. This was not that. Oh, no, this is shady. This employee used internal controls to make changes to a contestant's roster 
after games had kicked off. So literally cheating, Dirty. including swapping in a player who had already scored a touchdown. Mm. You can't do that. Can't do that. Um, this reminds me of a great idea that I had. You guys let me know what you think. Okay. Uh, back in the day, I invented um, TiVo in my mind, like pausing TV and stuff. That was me. Just couldn't execute the, the plan. Uh, but this one, all right, you should be able to sub one player during a live game. You take them off the bench. Because in real football, if one guy's not getting the job done, what do you do? You sit him on the bench and say, you know what? Hey, back up. You come in and you play. You should be able to sub one player in during live play. Now, I'm not a fantasy football expert. <laughs> that just feels like cheating. No, that's, it's, it's sports. You make subs. Make one sub. If, if, we're, if we're really doing it, like real life football, guys getting subbed in when all the time. When is the cutoff? Let's say the before game half starts time. before halftime. Before halftime, one sub. I'm not mad at it because I, like many people, have made a horrible decision to leave like a guy on the bench who then goes off for like three touchdowns. Like I've absolutely been kicking myself before. However, that's kind of part of the game of fantasy football is sometimes you're going to choose to start one guy mm-hmm. and that guy ends up not doing anything. He's hurt in the first five minutes and it's like too bad, so sad. That is why you lost this well, week. Well, allow the managers, because that's what you are in fantasy football, allow a little coaching to go in, go in there too. Let's go after, before the first quarter, how's that? First quarter, you get one quarter to make a sub. I have one question about Bump's super special oh, new fantasy. Yes, I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> Would you get the points that that player had scored before you subbed him in? Great question. Because that really feels like Great it would just be, question. hey, I want him because he no. scored a bunch of points. No, I like that. You know what you do? You uh, No, you only, you only get the points that he scored when he's in the game. But if guys he up, imagine somebody who uh, who took Puka, and in that first week, they're like, oh, dang, first quarter, this young man's balling. And then you put him in, but I like that. You know what? When I make tens of millions of dollars off of this idea, you get your 2%, Matt. I appreciate so that. So this, uh, this is a little more info about it. There's a $200 per entry buy-in, by the way, into this this specific contest that they were doing. So imagine, like, if I spend $200 to enter this and someone's cheating, I'm going to be really mad. Um, okay, so they noticed that a team, the people that were part of this, had leapt above them but had a very similar roster. Um, so they, uh, let's see, um, they checked the lineups. Uh, the user went with a guy. So they screenshot the lineup because of some reason. Uh, but then an hour and 13 minutes later, they had a different guy in the lineup. Um, and they had put Kelsey in there instead of Rasheed Rice. And they were like, wait a minute. We screenshot your lineup at the beginning because we were hoping you would take a specific player. Mm-hmm. And now you don't have that guy in your lineup but we're an hour and a half into the game, and instead you have Travis Kelsey in your lineup who's scored a touchdown already. So I don't know the behind-the-scenes stuff. Like, it's still being investigated. And, like, did they know someone on the inside? Did they – were they playing and they uh, had some connection? But basically that's how they found out is they screenshot someone's roster mm-hmm. and then went back and looked, and he had a completely different player in there after Shady. the game started. I don't know why you wouldn't start Kelsey, but that's just me. <laughs> you got George Kittle? Who you got? I know. The Seahawks have an important decision to make at quarterback, and uh, they may have to decide what to do there early. Uh, we've got some NFL draft insight from ESPN's Matt Miller next. Don't go anywhere.
You're listening to Bump and Stacy on Seattle Sports. Here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacy Ross. The Seahawks have an important decision to make at quarterback this year. Now, that doesn't actually start in the draft bump. It's going to start in February, around mid-February, when they need to decide whether or not they're going to fully guarantee part of Geno's contract. So, essentially, in February, they need to decide whether or not Geno's going to be the starter this year moving forward. But let's jump to the draft. Let's say they hang on to Geno and they decide that they're going to keep him here. Well, you might still want a quarterback. Do you need to make that decision at number 16 overall? Matt Miller, who was on with Brock and Salk, thinks that if you don't dis- like decide on that quarterback early, you're at risk of not getting a great one at all. This is you know, not the year where you're saying, okay, round two, like we might be able to get a developmental guy. Hey, maybe round three, we can get a developmental guy. That really doesn't exist this year. It's, it's almost feast or famine. So if you're not investing a first or really early second round pick in a quarterback, uh, there's going to be a pretty big drop off. You could interpret this a couple ways. One of them for me is if they don't keep Geno, they're absolutely taking a quarterback at 16. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, if they do not sign that man, they're definitely looking QB at 16. And and Schneider talks to people in the league, right? He, he's got some relationships with other general managers. He has intel that we don't have, especially when it comes to what teams might do. It's all projecting. Some of the intel is wrong. Nothing is certain or written in stone. But I think that's going to help determine what he wants to do as well. And whoever he brings in. Like, who is – if, if is, does Mike McDonald look at Geno in a positive light, knowing that he just dominated the heck out of that dude in that offense when the Hawks went down, was it 40-something to three or something like that, the worst loss in Pete Carroll history? Dang, you know what? That's messed up. That's one of the reasons why Pete's gone, too. The worst loss And then the guy who dealt you that loss might become the new head coach. It might be the new head coach, right? That's crazy. So there's a combination of things. How much longer do you think Geno has? What's the head coach going to want to do? And what's the vibe across the league when it comes to who's picking up who? Me personally, stick with Geno. If if it's that dire at the quarterback position and you get to 16 and there's no guy there that you think can be the future guy, don't force it. If you don't have your guy at 16, I'm sure they have two or three quarterbacks on their list right now. If your guy's not up there at 16, don't do it. I wouldn't do it anyway. I'm going straight defense because there's enough with his offense to be competitive. The defense ha- has to get things going. Caleb Williams will not be there at pick number 16. Drake May will not be there at pick number 16, but there is one name who could be. J.J. McCarthy. I like J.J. McCarthy. I think 16 is right around where his range is going to be. Um, but this would be a situation where you want him to sit behind Geno Smith and just absorb and learn and, you know, almost have that not not quite the three years that Jordan Love had, but you want, you know, almost an apprenticeship for a year, I think. Matt saying, look, there's a world where you could do both. Hang on to Geno and that $31 million cap hit for this year. He already knows the offense. He can help uh, be a transition quarterback, not just for a new head coach, but for a young quarterback in here. And yeah, get that quarterback at pick 16. And I think Geno would understand that role and embrace it because he's been in that position. He got to sit for a while. He was never really the next guy up, but he got to sit behind all these great quarterbacks and kind of learn and say, okay, when is my opportunity going to come up? And he had his opportunity, and he took it. I think that's part of the the situation, too. I wonder if John 
has that conversation with Gino before the draft. If they know they're going to pick a, a guy at number 16, a quarterback at number 16, if their guy's available, do you have that conversation with Gino? Like, look, man, a couple years left in your contract. We want to bring a guy in to kind of develop under you, just giving you the heads up. I don't think that Gino is the type of quarterback that has a seat at the table now. He's not an Aaron Rodgers or Pat Mahomes, one of the elites, but he's done enough in two years, I feel like, to be in the know about what they're going to do with that number 16 pick. Uh, Julio in Mill Creek says, I don't quite understand Gino's salary situation. So even though Gino's total cap hit in um, 2024 is going to be, uh, let's see, $31.2 million, that's not actually like salary. That's all kinds of things. Right. And so $12.7 million in salary becomes fully guaranteed on February 16th. It's an injury guaranteed. So basically the Seahawks, if they, if Gino's still on the roster on February 16th, Gino is your quarterback for this year. Now, maybe he's, you know, not your starter, who knows, but like if the Seahawks want to move on, the wise thing to do is to do so before that 12.7 million fully guaranteed part of his salary kicks in on February 16th. Man. And I understand the attraction of a rookie quarterback. Um, because if you're the head coach, you're getting your guy. You guys are starting this journey together. You essentially get what Pete Carroll got with Russell Wilson. He chose his guy. They brought in a guy, Matt Flynn, who they paid a lot of money. And um, you go to training camp, and Pete has his guy. So that's the attraction of it. But there are some things that you want to guarantee yourself. You want to guarantee yourself a chance to have a quarterback who's led this team before and, and done it well. Numbers wise, you're not gonna he's not gonna jump off the, the stat sheet and wow you, but he's made some plays, he's won some games, and that just um gives you less to worry about, right? Because the one thing you have to be when you get a new job is you wanna be extremely competitive or people have to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. When a guy like Canales over there with the Panthers, people are just looking for the light. You ain't gonna mm -hmm. be super competitive. You're looking for the light, you understand what the team was last year. And this situation is different. Gino keeps you competitive and allows you to develop a guy behind him. Again, I still want to go defense. Let's say that you want to go defense. Matt Miller has a suggestion. Darius Robinson from Missouri. Six foot five, <laughs> 290 pounds, but he played standing up at Missouri. But he can bump down. So, you know, again, we don't know the scheme, but knowing what John likes, you know, size up front, versatility up front. I think Darius Robinson, it, with one of those round three picks could potentially be there and be the guy. If you had a round two pick, I would jump on my desk and say Edgerin Cooper, the linebacker from Texas A&M, because it's just, I remember watching Jordan Brooks and thinking, this is a, this is a, a Seattle, a Seahawks player. Edgerin Cooper's the same way, but he's going to be off the board before you guys get a chance to draft him mm -hmm. in the second round, unfortunately. Yeah, this isn't him saying take Darius Robinson uh, at pick number 16. What he's saying is, look, if the Seahawks are going to go defense, there's a lot of great guys, but look at that defensive line. Look at bulking up there. That's really where they should focus. Yeah, and um, he said his name, so I'll put up his profile. <laughs> I didn't. I don't know much about this dude again. Haven't really started my in-depth um, draft analysis yet or research. He's 6'5", 296 pounds. The kid is out of Missouri. He's good on the edge and the D-line. I think that um, depending on your scheme, too, um, if you have a guy on the edge, uh, you would love that he'd be able to slide in and tear every now and then and walk down a linebacker. No, it um, sounds good, man. I don't know much about the kid, but looks good on paper. Okay, fairly, I'm being yelled at. Uh, Stacy. how the heck does Gino know the offense when we're getting all new offensive coaches, new scheme and all that? Okay, then no one knows the offense. Yeah, but you, but you want a guy 
who's been there and who's done that is essentially your point. Not yeah. a guy who's fresh into the league and has to deal with the speed of the league. Then And, and then, look, all right, let's say it's not going to be the same offense, right? You know how many playbooks Geno has explored? At least four or five, right? Different coordinators, different playbooks. So yes. once you understand an offense, the language might be different, but now you're able to pick and associate, okay, this term – term means this in a in a uh, um a Shane Waldron type office. So there's familiarity. Yeah, the point is that he's a veteran quarterback and that some teams have desired in more recent years right. draft a guy who may have some question marks and just have him sit behind a veteran. Mm-hmm. That it will be easier for someone like Gino to pick up an offense than it will be for someone who has never played a snap in the NFL. Facts. So um, okay, let's see if we have time. I don't have time to get to any more of this sound. Um, Matt Miller, so this is on the Brock and Sog podcast. He had some good stuff uh, on some of the strengths um, in this draft and where positions are deepest. So recommend that you go listen to that interview. Good stuff in there. Again, that's Matt Miller. Uh, all right, Jim Harbaugh is coming to the NFL. Nick Saban's retiring. It makes us wonder about the state of college football. That's next.